Mormon Stories Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonstories.org. So let's tackle polygamy. Um, <laughs> I'll let you tackle polygamy and I'll listen. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, so, the, okay, the biggest, the, pro, the most, pro, like, okay, the fact that God may have told Joseph to practice, you know, that he could have multiple wives, you yeah. know, I guess a believing Christian would have to square that with, with the Old Testament, with the fact that it was allowed, right? Right. So, I mean, you know, you could kind of take that step and go, well, that's a little bit weird, but okay, you know, God, God God's done some weird things before. But the fact that Joseph lied about it, that he didn't tell Emma about it, the fact that he didn't start with a revelation in 1830 that he told everyone and then lived it openly and and you know honestly the fact that again he was hiding it the fact that and this is just bizarre the fact that oliver caldry apparently finds out about fanny alger in i don't know 1838 or whenever it was yeah calls it an affair and that joseph doesn't even bother to say hey what i got a revelation um well we don't know what he said I mean, those conversations were presumably private. All we know is that he explained what had happened to Oliver Cowdery's satisfaction. He did? Yeah. Oliver, oh, did, I thought he excommunicated it, Oliver Cowdery. You know, I, I should probably pause the record button and, and redo my research. I don't recall how that episode unfolded, but it was my understanding. And you may be right. That may have been the time that that may have been when the, the rupture occurred. I think he called it a, but Oliver Cowdery called it a dirty, dirty little filthy, affair. Nasty yeah. affair, yeah. Yeah, but at least temporarily there was a kind of, of resolution to that discord between them. And we don't know what that might have been. And it could right. be that Oliver just changed his mind and didn't yeah, buy right. it anymore. But Yeah. Okay, but but still, like, why the – and okay, and then the final thing is, like, all the polyandry, the, the marrying – you know, there's this idea that he used coercion and power to tell parents of these young teenage girls – if you don't, you know, let your daughter be with me, people are, heads are going to roll and God's going to be mad. And, and But if you do, you'll be sealed to me and you'll be on my right hand. And like so much coercion, even in DNC 138, there's so much coercion, you know, in his threats to Emma. And then, and then, so there's the sending off the husbands to marry their wives while the husbands are away. There's the coercion that he used. You know, and that's weird, sending people on missions so he could marry their wives and not tell the people. And then finally that he denied it all. And then when someone came out and tried to be honest about it, he denounced them and destroyed the printing press. Like this, this is really hard to defend, right? Yeah, it is. And I don't pretend to understand much of it. I think what you say about, about, about force and spiritual coercion is true. I think Joseph had stated clearly by way of revelation in 121 that right, no power or authority can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. And then it appears that he used his authority in the priesthood to spiritually coerce um, people into this practice by threats of damnation and, and so forth. And I 
I, if polygamy itself was sanctioned by God as a practice or commanded, I don't believe that he sanctioned the way in which Joseph implemented it on occasion. On the other hand, what I find very striking about early narratives of polygamy written by the women who engaged in, in that first generation is the astonishing pattern that emerges time and again with these young women who say they were appalled and horrified and aghast. And then on some occasions, Joseph would say, well, that's fine. Then you pray about it and come back to me. And these women have dreams, they have visions, they have visitations, they have revelations that give them a perfect peace and willingness to accept polygamy. I'm not saying this was universal, but I'm saying that the pattern is is common enough in the historical record for anybody to read to stop and take a second thought as to exactly what all this might mean. I don't know why Joseph instituted it. I, I believe wholeheartedly that he certainly believed he was commanded to do so. How extensive that practice was meant to be is not clear to me both in the Book of Mormon and in section 132. The indication is that it's only permitted under the rarest and most limited of circumstances. And of course, it's not until after Joseph's death that it becomes a church-wide practice. Um, I, I, I think it's also interesting that as early as 1912, I think it is 1912 or 13, that a letter is written to the president of the church asking if plural marriage is a principle going to be a principle in the eternities. And Joseph F. Smith writes back and says, we don't know. So within just what? a few years... Wait, what is this? Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's in, I've got the, I've got the reference written down somewhere. It's in the, um, I think it's in the Contributor magazine where letters written and, and published. And he says very clearly, Joseph no, we don't F. know. Joseph F. Smith. Yeah. Who was a polygamist. Said, yeah. And he says, we don't know if this is going to be, you know, a, a required practice in the eternities. Man, I want to see that reference. So I'll, I'll, I'll happily send it to you. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that's astonishing. A hundred years ago, already, the church leadership was, saying, was backing away from this as an eternal doctrine and saying, you know, it may have just been a temporary thing. We don't know if this is really long-term required. Joseph, Brigham Young himself equivocated. He was back and forth all over the map on this question. It's an eternal principle. If you don't practice it, you're going to be damned. And the next minute, well, no, you can be saved with one wife as well as with ten. Um, it seems to be a doctrine that never achieved the status of actual clarity um, on the part of anybody. And it seems to be one of those instances where Joseph felt that in order to recuperate fully the Old Testament gospel in synthesis with the New Testament, that he had to reinstitute the practice of polygamy. The specifics as to how he was going to do that obviously were not clear to him. And he seemed to bumble his way through from one attempt to implement it to another. As far as the subterfuge and the line, I think he clearly believed, and rightly so, that if he had publicly proclaimed the practice, the church would have been annihilated. And I think he probably looked to Old Testament precedents like Abraham lying about his Sariah being his sister in order to, to justify his deception. Um, so that's some of the sense I make of it. I think that whether it was intended by God, whether he actually commanded Joseph to practice it or not, 
I think that the Lord certainly chose to bless those people who practiced the principle out of the belief that they were faithfully executing a responsibility to do so. Um, but there's no doubt in, in my mind, at least, that that is not going to be a part of the eternal order of things after this life. Hmm. So what things are possible in your mind? Is it possible that DNC 132 is just a mistake and shouldn't be there at all? Is that something that you would be okay with if that were turned out to be the case? Uh, yeah, I'd be okay with that, except I think that 132 is, you know, we're talking about a very large, complex revelation. And if you were to break it down, you know, it's been read so differently by Mormons and even Mormon leaders through time. Um, and there have been a number of readings of section 132 that think virtually the entirety of it is about the eternal marriage covenant and only the first few verses and a few at the end have anything to do with plural marriage for, for, for se. And that's how I read it. But they're pretty clear at the end. Uh, yeah, I'd have to have it here in front of me to, to remember exactly what, what claims. It talks about if a man take unto him a virgin and, you know, it's not a sin if you take on an extra virgin, you know, under this, my covenant, stuff like that, right? Well, well, right. And, I, and, I, and, and to that extent, I'm perfectly happy to believe that people who practiced polygamy were not practicing adultery because they were doing it under, under uh, the authorized authority to do so. And this comes back to what I said earlier. Whether God himself intended this practice or not, I think that he was willing, in essence, to stand behind his prophet and say, well, if this is the principle that you have right, taught and, and outlined and, and, and decreed, then, yeah, I will bless people for, for following it. Um, I think that a prophet is never going to be allowed to impose a doctrine which is going to be so pernicious that it destroys our souls, but it seems to me clear in the history of the church that the crucible of plural marriage certainly was a, a kind of fiery furnace that galvanized faith and testimony and, and led to a numerous posterity of very faithful, committed Latter-day Saints. So there seems to have been something good that came out of it, although I'm glad that I wasn't one that was called upon to be put to that test. Mm. And and in your mind, the way that Joseph carried it out could have been offensive in the sight of God. You hold open that possibility. Yeah, I do, certainly, insofar as there certainly seem to have been occasions when, when spiritual coercion or deception were involved. But I, I also would say that, you know, this is one of those issues that cuts so close and is so controversial because of the sexual dimension that is right seems to be implicit in the practice and you know i and here I, I defer to kathleen flake i think her observation was very astute when she said if he were merely trying to satisfy his libido there's certainly much easier ways to do it than to elaborate an entire theological structure to justify it just sleep with a few people for heaven's sakes and and so i think that that's just really simple-minded to, to try to attribute this to, to Joseph's lust, not to mention the fact that, that he clearly was fertile. He clearly didn't have any problem as a progenitor of children. And yet, you know, the landscape wasn't littered with plural marriage offspring of Joseph Smith. In fact, it's my understanding that in spite of a number of DNA tests, not a single example has been found. So if he was in, engaging in, in sexual congress with these plural wives, he certainly wasn't doing it on a wide scale. 
Mm, or there'd be children. Or there'd be children everywhere. So the idea that he was just a just a high libido, you know, and some even say pedophile, you just don't you don't go there. No, that's that's just silly. I think I think Richard Bushman has given us one of the the better explanations of what appears to have been his his motivation, and he's doing this, of course, within the framework of how he understands the gospel to work. But he thinks that this has to do with the, you know, the extension of the family units, the family dynasty in all directions and across generations, but also across family lines. It's a way of of creating alliances and bindings to other families and lines. And so I, it's it's clear that. It, it wasn't at all about, you know, the, the relationship itself of the man and the woman or the sex involved. That was way it was, beside the point. It was bigger than that. I mean, most people still don't know about the law of adoption, that that men were being sealed to other men in the right. temple all the right. way until 1890, right? That's right. That's right. I don't know if it was as late as 1890, but I know that at least through the early Utah period that yeah, Brigham Young. I just read a discourse yesterday, Brigham Young, where he's saying, "Y'all, yeah, anybody that wants to be adopted, me, that's fine, as long as they're willing to follow my rules." So, right. <laughs> um, yeah, it was all about creating this endless chain of relationships up and down and across. And it's in that context that you have to understand Joseph's theological understanding of polygamy. Hmm. And and what what do we make of? And you you touched on this a bit, but I think. I think prophets, seers, and revelators said that polygamy would be, you know, a requirement to attain the highest level of the celestial kingdom. I'm pretty sure John Taylor said that, right? Well, he may have said that. And as I said, Joseph, uh, Brigham Young said that at times, but then at other times he contradicted that. Did he? And what did he say to contradict yeah, it? I don't have all these ready to hand. Okay, but no, I, I understand. I understand. I, there's a whole list of quotations I have of, Joseph, of Brigham Young that are just all over the map on it. Um, but, you know, here again, the important thing is that every church every religious system has to have in place some system by which you establish the parameters of dogma and you know mormonism has that we have a process by which we canonize or or give you know according to the law of common consent we assent unto church teachings as legitimate and binding and there's never been a proposition that the church has had to agree to that makes polygamy necessary or requirement to salvation yet your book uh people of paradox laments the fact that that sort of i don't know is it that that doctrine has been ceded to the historians like there is a sense of uncertainty about what really is mormon doctrine anymore right well so there is a clear process but there's also a lot of confusion there is a lot of confusion and i you know i think it's highly significant that when elder mcconkey wrote his mormon doctrine you know, I think it's fairly well known now that the presidency commissioned a, a committee to study it, and they, they ascertained that there were over 1,000 errors in Mormon doctrine. And yet, they continued to allow its publication all the way up until, what, a year ago? No, that's not true. He was told to not publish it for many years, and then when David O. McKay was on his, well, was not necessarily fully coherent, then Bruce R. McConkie brought it back after, as I understand, promising that he wouldn't but that's that's my right. that's my recollection no, no. no you're right there was a hiatus but but what i'm saying is true which is that in spite of the 1000 errors and in spite of the fact that he never corrected many or most of those that the church subsequently continued to countenance its publication right through its official organ deseret book and so what that tells you is that 
the church just doesn't seem to be overly concerned with the specifics of correct doctrine. Yeah, I'll say. And, um, <laughs> and you know, I, but, but, you know, let me say something on this subject. I, you know, I, one of my best friends here is a, is a Catholic colleague, and we have long and many conversations about religion. And he's very well versed in his own tradition. And he's given me abundant reading materials that I've poured over. And I have to say that if, if you read Cardinal Ratzinger before he was a pope, or you read John Paul II on the theology of suffering, these people propound some of the most exquisite, eloquent, intellectually satisfying theological positions. And we have a leadership, you know, that, that writes books or gives sermons on, you know, be happy or be <laughs> kind or be this. Yeah, and that's, you know, and so on the one hand, there's a kind of embarrassment there. But then here's the other, here's the other side to that. Yeah. When John Paul II died, a Catholic po political commentator wrote this. He said, John Paul II was the most beloved and the most ignored pope in our history. <laughs> It's statistically demonstrable that the Catholic Pope has no measurable influence at all, zero, on many of the Catholic Church's core teachings. Catholics practice abortion at the same rate as the national average. They practice birth control at the same rate as the national average. We could go on and on, right? right. So in spite of the beauty and the eloquence and of the writings and, and, and divorce, and divorce yeah. there's no impact. And so you've got somebody like President Kimball or President Hinckley, and he's not a sophisticated theologian, but he writes these books. And what do you find? You find that there is this immense level of support and sustaining for what he teaches. And, and so, you know, what to my mind at first was a kind of an embarrassing comparison turns out upon subsequent reflection to be something that I'm actually rather prouder to, to own. And that is the fact that Mormonism, like Judaism, in the final analysis, is really more about practical ethics than it is about theology. Yeah, yeah. You know, I this is irrelevant because it's just my feelings, and I try and keep those out. But I'm going to breach with my protocol and just say that I actually totally agree with you. I don't, I don't want my prophet to to have written tomes of of complicated theological speculation and and. Even though I've grown to have deep love for people who don't live Mormon values of, you know, word of wisdom and law of chastity and all that stuff, the, the, something that I find um, something that I find unceasingly beautiful about Mormonism is the simple lifestyle and truths and ethics that it so consistently and stalwartly advances about be kind, be clean, be loving, serve, stay out of debt. Like, yeah, Dr. Phil or Oprah could tell us to do those things, but man, we've been beating that drum for a long time. And there is something beautiful about the quality of person that that so often produces to me. That's right. And, and the famous study done at North Carolina Chapel Hill just a few years ago and published by Oxford University Press about spirituality among Americans' youths demonstrated quite conclusively that there is not a single religious group in America whose youth are more faithful to their church's teachings than Latter-day Saint youth. So, you know, the church is doing something right in terms of making religion practical and livable. Yeah, and, and kind of uplifting 
and and um, ennobling to those who follow it. Yeah. So I love Mormon theology, right? I mean, you know, you mentioned I'm writing a two-volume history of Mormon theology. Right. But I don't think that what I'm doing is anywhere near as important as being able, you know, as being in a position to to, to teach, you know, pure and simple rules for how to live a Christ-like life. And that's that's what a prophet and the brethren are doing. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, the last, I think, the last big. Um, area to explore um, is is kind of the Book of Mormon. It's the stuff that I talked to to Dr. Michael Coe about. You didn't happen to listen to that, did you? I didn't. I didn't catch it. Okay. Well, it, you wrote a whole book on it uh, by the by the hand of Mormon. It was recommended was recommended me. I still haven't read it. Um, I want to read it. I have it now. Um, no, I had it before. It's one of the ones I already had, but I hadn't. I skimmed it, and I just to be honest, I. I told you just before, I dismissed it. I just said, Givens has got to be like the other apologists and he's going to make crazy justifications and he's going to just focus on plausible deniability. And, you know, there's no way to have a credible defense of the Book of Mormon. But now you've got me totally interested to want to read it. And I even talked to a guy who's resigned from the church, really angry at the church last week. And he said last week to me, that by the head of Mormon was an excellent book, and yeah. and that surprised me. Uh, so um, so I'm just gonna if it's okay I'm gonna just go through the biggest attacks on the Book of Mormon, and and uh, and just hear how you work through it. And I'm assuming that this is all in your book by the hand of Mormon. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. So um, uh, so. So the, the the one place where people always quickly go is what what I don't know what I've heard referred to as the anachronisms. So the the animals in the Book of Mormon, you know, horses, cattle, oxen, donkeys, goats, sheep, swine, and elephants, right? Like these are animals that, according to Dr. Coe, you know, either existed you know thousands of years before and died off before the Native Americans, you know, ancient Americans would have been uh, tooling around or they were brought over by the Spanish afterwards. And, and he also brought up an interesting point. He brought up an interesting point that all the animals that should have been in the Book of Mormon, like jaguars and turkeys and dogs, they don't appear in the Book of Mormon as well. And then you could also talk about steel, how Book of Mormon mentions steel, yet... Um, you know that 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 level of, of metal had not yet been developed. Um, it talks about all these weapons, the swords and the shields and the helmets, of which we've never found any, ever, not one that's really credible. And then you've got, um, you know, the wheel or your chariots in the Book of Mormon that you know again, no one's ever uncovered. And so you've just got all this stuff in there that Joseph would have been swimming in. That, that critics would say he clearly infused in without a knowledge about that they shouldn't be there. All these medals, coins, you know, and I know that coins come in the title of the chapter headings, not the actual text. Right. But, but talk about the anachronisms because they're really fatal to a lot of people. Yeah, I think there are some anachronisms, and you may be disappointed, but in By the Hand of Mormon, what I say about some of them like horses is, well, these are a problem. Oh, 
and <laughs> horses horses isn't really a problem because horses clearly what they were seen were llamas and that's why they were called llama knights <laughs> he's joking we, everyone he's joking yeah. <laughs> so you know, I don't know. I mean, I can, you know, I can come up with, you know, I can grasp at straws and I can find mildly plausible kind of possibilities and explanations. You know, I know that I, I haven't done a lot of translation work, but I've done some. And many times it's very hard to come up with, with equivalents from one language system to another. So what do you, you know, what do you call a, a metal that's kind of like steel? Or what do you call a sword that's kind of like a scimitar? Or what do you call an animal that is kind of like a you know, a, a horse. So, you know, that's a possible explanation in some of these cases. I think some people at farms have argued historically that, you know, if you're doing excavations in, you know, the Saudi desert, that's one thing because climactic conditions allow for the preservation of a lot of material culture. That's not the case in Mesoamerica. So like, so like should, Nibley said, things disappear. Things disappear. So we shouldn't expect to, to, to find many remnants of a material culture consistent with that. And I think, you know, Nibley realized these problems 50 years ago, 70 years ago, and that's why he said, "Look, we got to stop looking for evidence in the New World and start focusing more on the textual kinds of continuities that we find with the Old World." And I think that that's been a more fruitful path for Mormon apologetics to follow. Right, See, seeing seeing the ancient world in the Book of Mormon instead of yeah. trying yeah. to find the Book of Mormon in the New World. Right. And I, you know, I don't, I don't believe in the expansion hypothesis of Blake Osler, but that doesn't mean that neither do I believe in the kind of tight, ironclad, constrained translation that, you know, Royal Skousen makes a case for. Well, well talk, talk about Blake Osler's expansion theory. Well, I mentioned that a little bit earlier when, when he has argued that, that Joseph Smith probably found something, but it was more like a pamphlet than a book and that he expanded it, that there was the nucleus of some kind of a record, but that most of what we have in the Book of Mormon was his inspired additions, and that's why there is so much contemporary culture and environmental influence that is reflected in that finished product. So it's an attempt to create a kind of coherent middle ground, a compromise between the environmentalist explanations on the one hand and those who believe in the divine transfer of records to Joseph on the other. And I think logically, and pragmatically, it's a beautiful compromise, but it doesn't work for me for the reasons I cited earlier that have to do with the fact that I don't see in the Book of Mormon evidence of a kind of ad hoc pasting together of disparate parts and sources. Because for you, it's more unified and seamless. and It's more unified and seamless. At the same time, nothing in my faith precludes the possibility that Joseph Smith could have been influenced from time to time in the translation process by contemporary language and ideas and vocabulary. I, I just, I don't, I don't see that as a problem. If he made assumptions based on his own cultural vocabulary, sees a bunch of words there that should have been more carefully, scrupulously translated, and they come out, you know, elephants and horses. Okay, well, you know, he bungled that part. I just don't see those as really deep-rooted problems. You know, it seems to me that we're, we're, we're swatting away the mosquitoes here instead of looking at the substantive mass at the center of this controversy. Which is what? Which is the Book of Mormon in its totality and in its coherence. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the, 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 the kinds of anachronisms seem to me, as I said, just rather incidental to a translation process that we already don't know very much about, so they don't cut to the 
the core of what he is claiming it represents. Okay, well, I'm going to come back and, and have you just riff on what is beautiful and new, what, what the Book of Mormon brings us. But So don't let me forget that, okay? Okay. Because I've, I've had friends tell me they're just, I'm not that impressed with the Book of Mormon. Like, it's just not that, you know, people say, how could a one person ever have created it? And they're like, look at what J.R.R. Tolkien created. Like, that's way better than the Book of Mormon. Like, so, I mean, I, so I'm not trying to mock that. Like, I... It's a beautiful book to a lot of people, so I want to come back to that. Um, okay. So, what about what about the fact that um, what about the fact that you just don't see uh, any indication in what we do find in Mesoamerica that that there were you know people speaking Hebrew or people talking about Jesus or you know all the things that you would expect if if the Book of Mormon happened, the descendants would have kept relics of the language, of the culture, of the, the, the theology, of the doctrine. And and one of the things that Co talks about, which I really loved, is, you know, the narrative that I was taught growing up was that Lamanites devolved, that it was like these Native Americans were ignorant, barbaric, evil, savages, and so they were just so decadent and sinister that their languages devolved, their art devolved, their spirituality and religion devolved. And they went from being more advanced and civilized into this despicable, grotesque kind of, you know, civilization. And then Ko goes on to talk about all the wonderful advancements that, that afford us because of, you know, ancient American civilization, you know, corn and and tomatoes and all this rich food and culture, you know, he says that that's like a does violent damage to these people's heritage, the richness of what they brought us, their tradition to just kind of write them off as these evil savages. Right. Um, yeah. So tell well, me how, what, what you would say about those two parts of that question. Okay. Well, two considerations to your last point. First of all, I think we're returning here to the BH Roberts problem. And that is, you know, the assumption that there should be all kinds of, of traces left in Mesoamerican culture of the Book of Mormon presence presupposes a kind of dominant cultural presence to begin with on the part of the Nephites and Lamanites. Right. You know, how many people arrived in the New World according to the Book of Mormon? What are they? I don't know, 25 or, or 30 in the original group? Mm -hmm. And at no time do they inhabit an area more than a couple of hundred square miles. They're a small group. They're, they're probably, they intermarry with, with indigenous populations. They're, Does the Book of Mormon mention existing civilizations that didn't does, come over on the boat? It doesn't mention them, but I think it was John Sorensen who wrote a, a good essay called Were Other Peoples Present When the Book, When Lehi Arrived, or something like that. And he, he goes through and shows all kinds of subtle hints in the course of the Book of Mormon narrative that there were other peoples here. And there, you know, there, there are hints that there were other people, and there's never any indication that there weren't. In fact, right, we're told in the Book of Mormon that from time to time the Lord has le led many people right by the Spirit into the prom into promised lands. So yeah, that's that's the most plausible, and that's the one that's most consistent with the historical records we understand it. Right, the diffusionist hypothesis is that there were many migrations across here. The Barren Straits, probably different kinds of transatlantic, transpacific 
you know, migrations. Who knows how many? The Book of Mormon doesn't ever claim there weren't. Hmm. So again, so many of these problems just evaporate because the expectations were wrong to begin with. The, the, the Book of Mormon civilization was never the dominant presence on the continent. Or, so I think, you know, that resolves a, a lot of a lot of these problems. Well, what about the hundreds of thousands in battle? Like, is that... Well, is, is it's that like it possible? in the Bible, and probably not, but in the Bible, I think we see a similar inflation of numbers, figures. Um, so I take those to be, you know, simple instances of hyperbole. And uh, I think it's also important to remember that this is a record that's being written by the victors. I think that they're, right, they have a... A, a, a strong theological and nationalistic motivation for emphasizing the degradation of their enemies, not just by way of self-indication, but also because they want to see the degradation of the Lamanites as a kind of indication of God's disfavor and what happens when we disobey his, his laws and covenants. So it isn't surprising to me that you would, you would find a kind of radical dis, uh, disregard, disrespect for cultural value and status of the Lamanites as a people. That's kind of what you'd expect to find in this kind of a historical chronicle. So for you, you wouldn't expect to see Hebrew showing up. You, 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 you know, you wouldn't expect to see DNA showing up because no, it's just a small I, subpopulation. That, yeah. And the, the DNA is another one of these red herrings. I, mean, I, I don't think from what I understand, and I've tried to read up on the literature pro and contra, and from what I understand, many, if not most, of the reputable scientists who have bothered to be engaged in this controversy say, look, DNA is just an inappropriate scientific methodology to evaluate the historical claims of the Book of Mormon. But even if you're not looking at it as a, as a scientist, the whole thing is a red herring because we're told so early on in the Book of Mormon that, in fact, in 1 Nephi 13, we're already told that whoever survives the apocalypse is going to be a mixture of the Nephite and Lamanite seed, we're also told that from the time of Christ onward, Lamanite is a designation that refers to beliefs and not to ethnicity. So by the time that the Book of Mormon concludes, there isn't any claim at all that is being made by the record about the ethnicity of those peoples called Lamanites. So what do we think we're testing for when we, when we, when we test modern-day Indians? It's just, uh, it's just kind of silly to my mind. Is, are you are you comfortable with the idea that that God would turn people's skin dark as a result of wickedness or evil? No, I don't think so. You're not comfortable with that. No. But but doesn't the Book of Mormon clearly say that? Well, I think it does, and I think that the people who are writing the record probably felt that they did see evidence of that, and that may have been their own own you know prejudicial perception of the difference between themselves and their enemies. I mean, you know, if you want to find what I think is a pretty good contemporary parallel, look at the Life magazines that were published in the 1940s that featured articles on how to distinguish a Japanese from a Chinese. <laughs> and they, they purported to be able to detect in the physiognomy of the Japanese all kinds of racial degeneracy. And, you know, it's a fascinating example of where you think you can see things in an actual racial physiognomy that are, are based on racist motives. And so why not a kindred kind of thing transpiring in the Book of Mormon?
Mm, yeah, because that's something that you would have a hard time selling me on, but you're not trying to. No. Yeah, because that's not squaring with the God I want to worship. <laughs> right. I don't mean to be arrogant. I really don't mean to. <laughs> I just, I'm just sensitive to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so two Kimuras then? Like, did 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 Moroni run the plates up to New York from Mesoamerica? <laughs> have you even have you even tried to contemplate? Uh, what geography maps and and how this all squares with with our real geography? Yeah, I think you know. Again, John Sorensen wrote a book, an ancient American setting for the Book of Mormon, and it's it's a it's a it's a really impressive piece of scholarship that correlates a, an exquisitely close re- textual reading of the Book of Mormon with everything that is known about Mesoamerican geography and topography. And you know, he makes a pretty convincing case that there is a. a an uncanny um, congruence between the Book of Mormon geography as described and, and Mesoamerica. So I, I certainly think along with both most Book of Mormon scholars working today that that is the strongest candidate for the setting for the Book of Mormon. Um, as to whether, how you reconcile that with the Hill Cumorah in New York, well, I don't think there is any relationship between the Hill Cumorah in New York and the Hill Cumorah in the Book of Mormon. Um, you know, Joseph didn't initially call the one in New York Hill Camorra. Oliver Cowdery, I think, was the first to call it that. And I think it, I think that that they believed it was because that was the easiest thing to assume. And there are a couple of possible explanations for that. And I'm not trying to argue either one, but I'm just saying, in my own mind, either explanation is perfectly plausible. One is that you know Moroni wandered for I forget what 25, 30 years after the uh, final battle, well, that's certainly plenty of time to wander a couple of thousand years, right? Vasco da Gama, I think it was, the Spanish explorer who we know made his way all the way from the Gulf of Mexico to Florida in less than two. So that kind of, of migration by foot is not by any stretch of the imagination unthinkable. Yeah, co-agreed with that. And uh, at the same time, Joseph right, recorded an incident in which he saw a man walking along the side of the road with a knapsack and he said that was Moroni with the gold plates. Well, <laughs> if he's transporting them then, as an angel, he could have transported them at any time in the intervening thousand years and more. So I don't I don't think that's an issue. I think it's interesting that Farms or the Maxwell Institute actually published an article a year or so ago by a non-Mormon archaeologist who said if you stick a shovel in anywhere in upstate New York, you'll come up with 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 points, arrowheads, spear points. Except the area around Palmyra. There's <laughs> never been anything found in the vicinity of, of Hill Camorra. So I think that would, that would be, we'd be on a fool's errand if we tried to make a case for that as a historical setting. So not, not New York. Not New York. <laughs> okay. Are there any major uh, criticisms of the Book of Mormon that I'm forgetting? Because you probably know them better than me. <laughs> Did we cover the yeah, big I, ones? Yeah, I, I think you've covered the big ones. All right, so I don't know if this is the place for you to tell us why the Book of Mormon is more than chloroform in print, but um, should we? I, I almost want to say we should save that for another episode. I don't know if you're going to have more time, so let's just put it this way. If you think you'll have more time with me than today, let's save that. If you think that today is going to be my only shot, then give us give us a quick um, you know, case for why the Book of Mormon deserves our our uh, attention. 
No, well, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you again. Oh, you will. But, um, okay. All right. Sure. All right. All right. Okay. So readers, so we're going to come back to the awesomeness of the book of Mormon later. Um, because I'm serious about that. Like I listened to Grant Hardy's, we did an interview with Grant Hardy man, he and his wife, was it Heather? Yeah. Heather. They just can't, I mean, they're not dumb people. These are like very smart people. And I mean, this guy's jumping from the rooftop about the Book of Mormon. Like he, <laughs> he eats Book of Mormons for breakfast. Like, yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Like smart, thoughtful people love the Book of Mormon. Really? And I, I, I don't mean to sound arrogant. It's just, it's just, um, I want someone to tell me how to fall in love with the book again, I guess. So, yeah. so I'll, I'll leave that um, to talk about. To talk about later. Well, I think we have covered, dang, a lot of territory on things about the church. Okay, so let's see. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. So, Blacks and the Priesthood. Um, the quick thoughts about that. I think I could guess what you'd say, but... Well, you know, President Kimball offered a prayer at one time in which he asked for forgiveness if we had sinned in our policy with blacks in the priesthood, which is the closest that anybody, any official of the church has come to suggesting that that was an out-and-out -out mistake. And I think it would be a good thing if, you know, the church settled in their own minds at the leadership levels if that was a mistake. And if it was, then to publicly acknowledge that and and uh, you know, make make public apology. And if it's not, then there should be forthcoming, you know, a better kind of doctrinal explanation of what that was all about. Uh, but we've been left rather in the dark. It is significant, of course, that the prohibition against blacks in the priesthood was never made by Brigham Young functioning in the capacity of prophet, but rather functioning in the prophet the capacity of territorial governor. It's clear that the rhetoric and the justification that he used was borrowed from the religious culture of the day. Definitely, yeah. And so there isn't any indication that I'm aware of that there was a revealed basis for that practice. I think in some ways it's it's akin to polygamy in that that it was implemented in a way that um, was vague, not clearly understood, certainly didn't seem to be consistent with other eternal principles as we understand them. And um, it's distressing to me and it's distressing to, right, I think millions of others that this episode is, is something for which we don't have an adequate explanation. But this falls under the framework you set out about free agency uh, and, and God allowing man to make mistakes. And this is just an unfortunate byproduct of that Principle. Yeah, yeah. You know, B. H. Roberts said something once that was really quite alarming in some ways, but quite reassuring in others. And he said this in his capacity as a seventy of the church. He said it was his belief that personal revelation to leaders of the church happened infrequently and only under the most extreme circumstances. That it was God's intention to call men to those offices and then to delegate them the authority to perform in those offices according to the best of their light and understanding. And uh, that, again, requires a kind of readjustment of the paradigm that most of us have imbibed through the church educational system and years of seminary and Sunday school. But I think it's more consistent with what we see in church history. And 
I think it's it's more realistic. It's more consistent with our theology. And it sure goes a long way towards explaining things like blacks and the priesthood. Yeah, yeah jo- the, the, Brigham Young didn't even like himself to be called as prophet. Isn't that right? Like we're, most of the people we call prophets now, didn't they call themselves presidents of the church through like David O. McKay? You know, that's a good question. I don't know much about the history of that title and how it's been employed, except in the earliest period, when in the aftermath of Joseph's martyrdom, and there's the the meeting in August in Nauvoo, and the question there is raised, is anybody, you know, fit to assume the mantle of prophet? And everybody on the spot says, no, there was only one prophet. The prophet was Joseph. Yeah, the prophet, right? The prophet. And even to this day, if I were to approach a Mormon just out of the blue and say, what do you think about the prophet? Yeah. <laughs> His answer would probably be, do you mean Joseph Smith? Yeah. Um, so he has the special status, and I think you know that's one reason why Brigham Young waited so long before he actually reconstituted the presidency and assumed that title, but that would explain his reluctance to actually be called prophet because nobody wanted to pretend to inherit those shoes. And nobody's really tried. You'd think that one of them would just kind of well, oh, Brigham Young kind of, kind of did, right? I mean, he 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 tried his hand at at <laughs> revelatory innovation, right? He tried the Adam God, and that didn't work and very well. And blood atonement. And then he tried blood atonement, and <laughs> that didn't work very well. And then he just seemed to content himself with being a, a colonizer and administering the the kingdom as best he could. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? And and since then, we haven't had a lot of innovations either. No, we talk about an open canon. <laughs> and yet it's really an open canon more in, in theory than in practice. I mean, the community of Christ has an open canon, right? They add revelations every year or two, but uh, ours haven't changed much. So we believe in an open canon, but it's an ultra-conservative institution. So where is the continuing revelation? Well, you know, the brethren testify every conference that the church is administered by the principle of revelation. I think what they mean, and the way I understand it, is that revelation is a principle insofar as there is a kind of inspiration that guides the day-to-day running of the church in a way that makes it most effective. I think that there is inspiration that is evident in more subtle, less dramatic ways than we tend to associate with revelation. I I think of a description I heard, for example, one of the apostles make in, in describing his experience with a missionary committee and the calling of missionaries, and referring to that as spiritually the most arduous experience that he had ever known, that every single missionary is called to a specific field by revelation. So I believe that that is true. I felt that was true in my in my own case. So I think revelation is is real, but not in the sense of grand epiphanies and doctrinal and theological stuff. Right. Not so much. So I guess there's one last area that I thought about talking to you about in this segment, and that's just science. You know, Joseph Fielding Smith, you know, seemed to talk about 6,000-year Earth, no death before the fall. no. Who pre- did? Joseph? Joseph Fielding Smith. Fielding, I, I, you right, know, I, right. Doctrines yeah. of Salvation, those books, I stumbled yeah. on them on my mission, and that set me up for a big fall, right? Evolution's evil, you know, literal Adam, Adam and Eve. No, no death before the fall. Dinosaurs were flown in from another universe. <laughs> you know what I mean? The bones yeah, are yeah, not from yeah. this earth. I even, I even read in your book, um, People of Paradox, that B.H. Roberts, when he was trying to do his 
grand synthesis, which we'll talk about later. I don't want to talk about that now. But um, he was trying to explain dinosaur bones away by having been brought from from other worlds and other matter. That was an old idea. It goes all the way back to Cuvier and catastrophism in the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Even Lord Byron wrote a play called Cain in which he explicitly said that. He talks about this world being created out of the detritus of past worlds with 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 extinct creatures. Who is this Lord Byron guy? Like I don't I've heard of Lord before. Byron. You got to read Lord Byron. He was <laughs> he was one of the greatest uh, agnostic theologians of his day. <laughs> Wait, an agnostic <laughs> theologian? What? Yeah, he 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 wrote two two of the works that have most powerfully impacted my own life and thinking. Um Cain, he wrote a tragedy based on the perspective of Cain in the garden, you know, after expulsion from the garden and Adam and Eve start their family. And he has this wonderful, wonderful narrative in which he explores religion through the eyes of Cain, trying to make sense of the God of the Old Testament. And it's mm. very, very powerful and, and poignant and just wrenching. Even now? Even now, because he identified with Cain. He himself was an agnostic. He wanted to believe but couldn't find a basis for belief in the context of 19th century religion. And then he wrote another great drama called Manfred, which is, it's a real meditation on the, on the possibility of Christ's atonement. And there he tries to present a case for the indefensibility on moral grounds of an atonement. Hmm. And uh, so they're, they're wonderful provocations to think more deeply hmm. about these religious kind of core beliefs i certainly could use that um i'm learning that my uh my thought has been somewhat shallow up to now um <laughs> so uh so science what, what do you yeah. make what do you make of noah and and the flood and the age of the earth and evolution and all that stuff well you know one thing that i think the church got right and that was that the church never made an official statement rejecting evolution and in fact, you have Widso a century ago saying Joseph Smith, right, taught evolution 50 years before Darwin. Um, you had a great struggle going on in the church in, you know, the ninth, well, starting really in the 1930s and 40s to really determine the direction of Mormon intellectual culture. And that battle was largely won by the arch-conservatives like Joseph Fielding Smith. But even while Joseph Smith is writing his book on man, his origin and destiny, and attacking evolution... Joseph Fielding Smith, right? Joseph Fielding yeah. Smith. Henry Eyring is right giving talks throughout those exact same years saying, no, we don't know that... You know, evolution is wrong, and evolution can be fully reconciled with the gospel. Um, Brigham Young didn't seem to have a lot of respect for Darwin, but even he shied away from condemning it as outright falsehood. So Mormonism, fortunately, never landed itself in the same predicament of fundamentalism, of having to try to right, develop a, a creationism science to make sense out of the world. And... Uh, so Mormonism in general has a fairly good record of being open 
to science. In the, in, the, in the time of Parley Pratt, Parley and Orson Pratt loved the idea of science. They used it everywhere. There was a science of prayer and a science of revelation and a science of theology. <clears throat> and, and the church went out of its way to promote science by asking its leading scientists to write church manuals in the yeah. 1930s and 40s. Right? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about that for sure. So, you know, it's a real shame. I think, I think that evolution is one of the greatest gifts that the church has. And here's why. Mormonism is, again, unique in the Christian field for denying from its inception original sin. Right. At the same time, people have noted that original sin is the only church doctrine that is empirically verifiable. <laughs> In other words, you look around the world, we seem to be a bunch of depraved, fallen people. <laughs> so how do we reconcile this benevolent view of human nature with the realities of the Holocaust and Rwanda and everything else? Well, you know, evolution provides one explanation. We are not spiritually fallen or punished as a result of Adam's sin, but we do inherit an evolutionary past that encumbers us, right? We, we, are, we are thwarted and burdened by selfishness and avarice and lust and all of these qualities that inhere in the biological part of ourselves. And I think evolution goes a long way towards explaining a different a kind of secular version of the fall, which Mormons should be quite willing to embrace because it spares us the difficulties of the theology of fallenness while giving us an actual account of why we are like we are. Hmm. So you're not an anti-science guy? Not not at all, not by any stretch. Isn't it... Uh, okay, so we're going to end on this today. This isn't just... We're going to end on a couple last things. Like, isn't it tragic? Like, egregiously, terribly, horribly sad that someone in Mormonism had to introduce some ideas and promote them that pits the church against science, for example, or that represents our history in an inaccurate or a whitewashed way so that so many people, tens of thousands of really bright, sensitive, caring people will find themselves abandoning their church in the 21st century, which is what's happening. Or the last thing is, oh, I don't know, that that um, I don't know. The, the last idea was coming to me and it, and it left. But... Well, well, let, let me just respond to that. You know, I think one of the most sobering truths about Mormonism is... Um, is the fact that just as we have this incredible capacity to be saviors on Mount Zion, we also have an almost limitless capacity to be Satans on Mount Zion. <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> and, you know, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis is like a top 40 song, you know? No matter how magnificent it really is, it's been overplayed so much. We tend to <laughs> tend to be tired of it. But I actually think he was one of the more morally insightful minds of, of this century. And in his book, Paralandra, he's, it's, much of Paralandra is a meditation on the reality and the implications of a universe that is predicated on genuine freedom of the will. And he asks the question, 
is it really conceivable that if an elephant had just stepped on the serpent's head moments earlier, Eve wouldn't have ever eaten the fruit of the tree? <laughs> right. And then, and then he concludes this. He says, if freedom of the will is real, everything or nothing must depend on it. And if everything, who can count the ramifications? Yeah. And what that means is one bumbling individual does have the capacity to mislead and injure the testimony of thousands. Or hundreds of thousands. And it's not fair, but it's the way it is. And that's the cost of, of this, this agency. You know, Neil Maxwell used to say, we've got to recognize the fact that we are all in a lifeboat. And we're and it's a leaking lifeboat. <laughs> and, you know, we've got to work together, we're all going to drown. Elsewhere, he said, we're clinical material practicing on each other. I mean, the, the stakes are just, you know, horrifically high. But they are. Apparently, apparently, and that, I, that resonates with me on the one hand. On the other hand, it's just so, it's so sad to see hosts of a generation just falling by the wayside in terms of their commitment to the church. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to show a bias here. I don't even know if I count myself in this group, but I really do believe that the late 20th and early 21st century will be written about a hundred years from now as an era wherein some of the best and the brightest Mormon minds and spirits and souls abandoned their tradition. And this is just a preview for what I want to talk to you about from people of paradox. But what we see in late mid, mid to late 20th century Mormonism is so many people rising up who had the chance to save these souls from defecting, to bridge the gap that you're bridging for me now. We're talking B.H. Roberts. We're talking Lowell Benyon. We're talking Eugene England. We're talking uh, Juanita Brooks. We're talking, um, you know, Leonard Arrington. It's like the church has systematically stepped on the heads of those who have risen up to try and stave off this mass defection. And it's killing me. Like, it's killing me, right? Does it kill you? Yeah, it kills me. I get emails by the dozens over time of people telling me the stories of their tragic decisions to leave the church. And in most every case, it has to do with the feeling of betrayal engendered by learning too late in life some truth about the Mormon past that they felt was denied them through the institution of the church itself. I've heard one of the leaders refer to this current period as unprecedented since Kirtland in terms of the number of defections that, that we're experiencing as a church. It's tragic because it's so preventable and it would take so little to remedy this problem. You don't have to change this mammoth institutional culture gradually or one step at a time. One of the virtues and the merits of the church as an institution 
Is it the primary vehicle for the instruction of its youth, the CES? Is an organization that falls in lockstep with the direction from, from Salt Lake? And when J. Reuben Clark gave his landmark address to the CES people on the charted course of church education, he instantaneously transformed church educational culture and set it on a path that it has pursued to the present day. And it would be similarly possible for somebody to make a comparable kind of address to the church educational people and say, we need to radically reform this culture. We need to tell our history openly, fully, and honestly. You know, it reminds me of a course that I teach on the Bible and literature where I, I present to the class a fairly radical reading of, of Genesis, reading it separate and apart from any kind of religious framework we impose on it in which satan seems to be telling the truth and, and god seems to be the one who's less trustworthy and and i always have religiously devout students interrupt me and, and try to defend the honor and integrity of god and i've had to say on more than one occasion look god can take care of himself he doesn't need you to defend him <laughs> and the same is true of the church if the church is a true and inspired and divinely sanctioned institution then there's no need to conceal any element of its past that's how i approached my writing on the book of mormon many people seem to have been confused as to whether i was a member or whether i was a member in good standing because i was tried to be honest and frank in addressing the problems and the obstacles in to 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 the historicity of the book of mormon and my my operating premise was if the book of mormon is true then it will remain standing after you throw the worst that can be said about it at it. And I think the same has to be true of, of church history. And I think this generation is eager and ready and willing to accept the whole truth. They just want to be treated as adults. And, and that's not happening. And this is the exact argument that Michael Quinn made just a few weeks ago. Um, so, I mean, it's wow, it's just like persisting across generations. And you know, if, I, if I were the, like, there have been, you know, you look at like the Sunstone crowd of the late 80s, early 90s. It wasn't necessarily a responsible lot in the sense that a lot of those September sex kind of people, like, you don't get the sense that they had, always had the church's best interests in mind towards the end in terms of the rhetoric that they were using, you know, I'll just use Paul right. Toscano as an example. You don't listen to Paul Toscano's 1992, 1993 speeches and think that if the church paid attention to him and did what he said, anyone's best interest would be served. Right. 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 But like, I'm thinking of a Lowell Bennion or Eugene England or Terrell Givens or whatever, or Richard Bushman. And it's like, these of all people are the people to elevate. Like, you know, you don't want to create priestcrafts, but, but like, come on, promote this. Like, at least, at least don't step on its neck. At least don't hide it. At least let it have comparable uh, visibility in our culture, right? And and you well, are, and you had told me yourself, and, and it's only because you told me I could mention this that it's okay. Your books are not available at Deseret Book. Well, I guess they've got one or two of them they carry as of the Which last ones? few weeks. Which ones? I think I think by the hand of Mormon they they now carry. Oh, sweet! 
and um, I, I assume they're going to carry Parley P. Pratt. But yeah, they've they've refused to carry any of the past books that I've written, and I I, I think that's uh, it, it represents a larger loss. It's not just my personal loss, but what it suggests is that there is an unwillingness to expose a Mormon readership to a presentation of the faith that is intellectually substantial and academically rigorous. Because Deseret has the function of, of serving as the kind of imprimatur of the church on any book that it sells. And, you know, the, 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 the stories are legion that I have heard of people saying, well, if it doesn't come from Deseret, I'm suspicious of it. I even had a Deseret employee tell me that when I asked if they carried a certain book that wasn't published by, which is, well, if it's not published by Deseret, I think there's good reason to be suspicious. Right. And I think Deseret could perform such a wonderful service in fostering a genuine intellectual culture in the church by, by carrying books and fostering the publication of books that challenge us to, to, to stretch. Um, it's, it's just a shame that we're, we're so intellectually blighted as a culture in large part because of the diet that we're fed. But I will say there are some positive signs. Yes, tell it. Let's end on the positive note. Well, I think the Joseph Smith Papers Project is a phenomenal project insofar as it represents an attempt to pull the lid off of Joseph Smith completely and say, here he is. Not only are we going to show you the process of editing and revision and change in every one of his first vision accounts and in every one of his revelations, but anything that's a part of the record, we're going to make publicly available. And we're going to do it without censorship. And, you know, what, what a wonderful sign of progress. I think um, the fact that the church archives are largely open and accessible. Um, I've never personally asked for anything that I was denied access to. Uh, the Mountain Meadows Massacre book seems to me a, a sign of the good faith of the church in trying to face up to and honestly address its past and, and make a kind of atonement for you know, one of the most, uh, you know, egregious, you know, crimes in the, in the Mormon past. Um, there are, you know, there are his, church history initiatives underway that are, I think, are going to make an attempt to tell our story more comprehensively and fully and honestly. I think Elder Marlon Jensen is one of the most inspired and benevolent and progressive men that the church has known in this dispensation. Um, he's he's an absolute godsend to the church and to the world. Under his leadership, our church history department is moving in precisely the direction in which it needs to move. So these are all encouraging signs of change. I hear it. he uh, he's gonna, he's reaching emeritus status in October because he's seventy five. Have you heard that or seventy? Yeah, I have heard that, and uh, you know we need to to all pray as a church that the, the sun will stand still for a couple of years. <laughs> he can stay where he is. Oh, let us not have another retrenchment, you know. Yeah, I don't see any signs of that. I think part of what's happened is the church has come very late to a recognition that the internet has changed the the, the rules of the game, and. The church can no longer control access to information about his past. And so the wisest course of action is to say, well, if our history is going to be told more fully, 
we better get on the ball and tell it ourselves. And the other really remarkably heartening development is that you have a press like Oxford that is now willing to let Mormon historians and scholars tell the story themselves. In the past, there seemed to be either inhibition on the part of Mormon scholars or prejudice on the part of secular presses, but you found that it was very, very rare that somebody like Leonard Arrington was able to break in to write a mainstream press like you know, he did with his biography of, of Brigham Young and, 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 and tell our story from, I don't want to say from our perspective, but I want to say from a, a, a non-cynical or skeptical perspective. And now, you know, there's a, there's a perfect willingness to do that. The presses are, you know, they're, they're virtually flooding us with this wonderful outpouring of really terrific Mormon scholarship all around. Hmm. So for you, the day dawn is breaking. It is. It's, uh, it's an exciting time. I can't imagine any better time in history to have been engaged in the pursuit of Mormon studies. And the Romney campaign and the Huntsman campaign only serve to further heighten public interest in Mormonism. And I think presses are responding to that demand as well. Yeah. Yeah, it really is kind of an, an it's kind of like a, a Mormon moment. I mean, that cliche has been lobbed around the past couple of years, but it feels like we're really at one. Yeah, we are. Huh. Well, I've got more questions to ask you, but we've gone, I think, four hours. <laughs> yeah, and then some, I think. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to say, wow, brilliant, totally brilliant. Where have you been, Terrell Gibbons, is my my question, but I've been waiting for your call. I'll <laughs> well, I think thousands of people are going to have their minds blown because I think, I think, tens of thousands of people have their minds made up and thought that 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 it, that Mormonism now didn't even deserve second thought. And I think you're going to give some of them pause. Well, I hope so. All right. Well, um, let's uh, we'll we'll sync back up together again about when to carry on this conversation. But Terrell Givens, author of "By the Hand of Mormon," "The Viper on the Hearth," Parley P. Pratt, "When Souls Had Wings," "People of Paradox." Um, thank you, Terrell Givens, for sharing your um, your thoughts and perspectives with us today. Great being with you, John. Thanks for having me. All right, talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Stories. Music today was provided by the Saber Rattlers. Check them out at saber-rattlers.com. The Mormon Stories logo was generously donated by studiocase.com. Thanks for listening. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy when your way. Hard to you, this journey may appear. Grace shall be as your day. Tis better far for us to strive. Our useless cares from us to drive to the sand Your hearts will swell.
Just we shall dwell.